Well, good morning, everyone. That's our prayer today. There are greater things. There certainly are greater things that have yet to be done in this city and beyond, and that's the hope of this message as well. As I invite you to find Matthew chapter 9, if you brought a Bible with you this morning, Matthew chapter 9. And keep in prayer the, uh, the church plants. In fact, I'm the only lead guy in, the, uh, in, this, in this Engage uh, network that is actually preaching in his pulpit today. Dave Heisterkamp's on a sabbatical. Josh Daggett and Greg Pollock are up on the boundary waters right now. And uh, so uh, there are other men of God in those churches that are preaching. And we're so thankful that God... And they're all individuals who emanated from this work right here at Sailorville. It's very, very exciting to see what God is doing. And uh, speaking of that, uh, God is uh, doing some great things just in a service regard here. Our missionary house is ready, open and ready for our missionaries, the bearers, to show up this week. And many individuals have been working in this church to get this thing ready and giving and just taking a lot of time. And, and so we are really going to open it up today for you. I know it's raining outside and all that. It might not be convenient. But if you can, uh, afterwards, you got to see what has been done over there to get that place ready. Now, we will ask you to take your shoes off. Uh, but, uh, and it's not much of a look, it's not a very big place, but it really looks nice, and so if you want to, if you're inclined to do so, you want to do, today's your only opportunity, because once the bears get there, I'm not even going to go there, I hope they're not listening this morning, I'm just kidding, they're going to be great, they got all those kids, and they're going to be, but they'll have all this area to run around, but once they're there, we don't expect people to be walking through the house, so your opportunity is actually today to do so, if you would, so a lot of great things have taken place, uh, uh, there, and so anyway, Matthew chapter 9, if you'd get there, and uh, the very end of it is where we're going to be for today's cliffhanger, so to speak. And it says, and Jesus, verse 35, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I first came to this church in the early 80s as a student. And when I came here, I was zealous for evangelism, and so it wasn't long after I was here that they, they gave me a Sunday school on evangelism. It was a big Sunday school, and I was teaching on evangelism, and I said in that first week, if we're going to teach on evangelism, we must evangelize. And so I said, you need to show up for calling, because the only guy showing up for calling was Gus Gonerman and me. So... That week, we had like 30 people from the class show up. It was awesome. We, we covered a lot of ground. The next week, I think 15 of them showed up. Within about a month, it was back to just Gus and I. And for the next couple of years, it was just long, slow, painful work here while I was a student here and serving the Lord in this area of evangelism. It's not that there wasn't a desire to win people to Jesus here. There was. But it seemed to be bottled up in some of the elderly people, like Ellen Ober, who just recently went to be with the Lord, and of course, Gus Gonerman. And then there was old man Dave Leonard. Anybody remember him? 
He always sat right here with his wife, right here. Always right here. And when Dave Leonard, now Dave would be the great-grandfather of Jared and Jana and, uh, and Jeannie, who are here today. What a legacy. And of course, we support his son, John. And uh, so Dave would, or not his grandson, John, that is. So Dave, uh, when Dave talked to you, you just listened. You didn't talk. And I ran into Dave at a grocery store. There used to be a food for less where the Ankeny Christian School is. Anybody remember that? And I met him outside of there as a student one day, and he started talking to me. Now, when Dave talked to you, he didn't always look at you, but you were supposed to look at him. And so he was talking to me, and I'm right here, and he said, you know, Pat, he says, uh, I was in a mission one day preaching the gospel. And then he goes, you don't dare preach anything else at a mission. Holy smokes. It about knocked me over. I have no idea what he, I can't, I have no memory of what he was talking to me about. But I will never forget that line. I'm in a mission one day preaching the gospel and then he just turned those beady eyes at me and looked me, I mean literally he was like a foot from my face. You don't dare preach anything else in a mission. And that line changed my life. It literally changed me. Because with that one line, he told me that the world, with all of the needs that it has out there, physical needs, relational needs, psychological needs, all kinds of needs, the only real need they have is Jesus. Their greatest need is a heart need. It's not all these other things. And it literally set my sail, so to speak, to make sure whatever I did, I had to make the gospel clear. So in this passage of Scripture, Jesus, at the end of a flurry of activity that included buku miracles and all kinds of teaching, attempts to open the eyes of his disciples and lays on them a huge task at hand and reveals to them that although there's a huge task, we got a really small workforce. And leaving them wondering, where is he going to get this workforce? We'll answer that. But the greater question for you and I today is, what goes into becoming a part of that workforce to win the lost for Jesus here in this city and around the world? Or to put it more simply, what must we do to enter that workforce? And there are six things in this little passage, this little paragraph we just read. Here's the first one. They're all just one-word exhortations. Serve. There's the first one. I mean, look at Jesus. He's going throughout all the cities, villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. The synagogues would have been a natural stopping point for Jesus. Basically, you only had to have 10 men in a city or a village to have a synagogue, so they were everywhere. Basically, they had a rule in every synagogue that if you were a traveling rabbi and you showed up, you be given the reins. You be given the opportunity to teach and to preach. And we see that in Luke chapter 4. Remember that? Jesus goes into, his, into Nazareth. He goes in the synagogue. They hand him a scroll. He opens it up. He reads it. He reads the prophecy, applies it to himself, and they try to kill him. So this was sort of what they did. And if you'll notice, he went through all the cities and the villages. And according to Josephus, this 
Jewish historian that lived about this time, he writes that there were about 204 cities and over 3 million people in the Galilee in this particular area. Why is that important? Because it tells us right here that he went to all the cities and he healed every disease. I mean, one writer put it like this, for all intents and purposes, in his lifetime, Jesus utterly banished disease in Palestine. Can you imagine that? Is it any wonder that Nicodemus comes to him and says, uh, teach, I mean, Rabbi, we, we, we know, remember we talked about that word know to know by observation. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Nobody can do these what? These miracles that you're doing unless God is with him. It's very evident. So he's just working his tail off. The schedule that Jesus kept and, and it doesn't, it doesn't, you can just, even a cursory reading will, of, the, of the Gospels will reveal, was exhausting. Mark chapter 1 gives us a day in his life, and you're just flying through, doing miracles, teaching miracles, teaching miracles, teaching. And then, you get, and then he does, he heals Peter's mother, and then gets up before the sun comes up the next day just to pray. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about that classic passage in John chapter 8, you know, where Jesus says, before Abraham was... What? I am. He, de- he, de- he identifies himself as deity, as God, as the one who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. But what, what led up to that is this argument with these leaders, and Jesus says, look, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And their response was, what? You're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Now, Jesus was barely 30 years old. It's interesting to me they didn't say, you're not 40 years old. And there are some who actually believe that Jesus had so many tread marks of life and stress that were on him from his workload that he looked a lot older than he actually was. Now, he took his breaks because, remember, he obeyed the law. He he didn't come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. So he did obey the Sabbath. He did set aside. He even called his own to come aside and rest. But even then on the Sabbath, if, if there was something that came up by way of need... He would take care of it. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. He needs some help. And he was about to get it. Around here at Sailorville Church, we expect our staff to work, to serve, and to go the extra mile. Not one individual that is paid in this church, no, they all know this. None of them were hired for some 40-hour-a-week job. If that's the idea, we say, go, hit the road. We don't want you. The idea, this is a ministry, and we don't even, that's not even in our heads. Or it shouldn't be. And as far as our deacons, our deacons don't get a lot of props around here, but they should. Like never before, and I mean this, in 15 years, like never before, every single deacon that we have is actively serving the Lord in ministry and outreach. And about half of them are directly involved in outreach and evangelism. I thank God for our deacons. All of you, all of us who know Christ are wired by God differently. That's the beauty of the church, amen? But our wiring, now listen to this, our wiring must give way to service or we will become like selfish little what's-in-it-for-me kind of people. In fact, those who tend to move from church to church don't give much and pretty much don't serve at all. Am I talking to anybody here? Am I ready to go somewhere else? 
Just flitting in, flitting out. Serve for Jesus' sake. Serve for the gospel's sake. I told a young man aspiring to pastoral ministry just the other day, if you don't lift a finger, few will listen to you when you raise your voice. So serve. And then in serving, here's a second exhortation, look, look. Look what it says here. It says, verse 36, when he saw the multitudes. Now listen, some of us, when we serve, we don't look. We keep, we keep our heads down and our noses to the grindstone, grindstone, as the old expression has it. That might sound good to you, but that's not how Jesus rolled. That's not how Jesus rolled. As he served, he was looking. The word saw means to see with the mind, to perceive, to look deeply. And it's worth noting because the Bible notes it. And our story doesn't simply state the condition of these people. It could. Or even that Jesus had compassion on them. But the story has it here. The narrative has it that in in seeing he had compassion. And isn't it true the things that we see just have this direct access to our hearts? Powers of observation. If we apply the powers of observation only to our study of God's word, it will not move us to action. We must look. We must see. We must observe. Study the condition of those that we are called to reach. Remember, it's a deeper kind of look. As I look out here, I see hundreds and hundreds of people. You all look good. You're dressed well. You get smiles on your faces. But I happen to know what's going on in some of your lives. And I'm not calling you out as hypocrites. In fact, I, it, just because things aren't going well, I hate, to, I, you know, I hate it when people wear all their feelings on their sleeves. But we're not going to deny that there are some struggles going on. There are relational issues. There are broken situations taking place. And some of you are hurting physically. And the only reason I would know that is because I know you. And I love the story of the guy in our church that last year went down, started working for Hope Mission, started walking the streets on Saturday morning. And he came back and he said, you know, these homeless people have been there. They're everywhere. He said, I, I used to drive by them. I would never see them. But now I see them. Look. The South African pioneer missionary Robert Moffat in the early 1800s came back on a furlough and was preaching to a large audience. And he, he ended his message with this epic paragraph that just was, it's existed to this day. Some of you have heard it. Here's what he said. Many a morning I stood on the porch of my house looking northward. I've seen the smoke arise from villages that have never heard of Jesus Christ. People are without Christ, without God, and without hope in this world. The smoke of a thousand villages. The smoke of a thousand villages. And in his mind's eye, a young medical student pictured the plumes of a thousand villages without Jesus Christ in the bush of Africa. 
And he approached Robert Moffat and dedicated his life to the interior of Africa. And David Livingston, who would end up marrying Robert Moffat's daughter, would give his entire life to that continent for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, you must look. If we're going to fulfill this task, this huge task with a small workforce that Jesus has laid at our feet. And then feel. The eye is the gateway to our feelings. And it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. This is the word where we, this is where we get our English word spleen. Our spleen. You know where that is? It's in here somewhere, right? The guts. In fact, that's the idea. He's talking about the guts. He felt in his gut what was going on amongst those people. In fact, this word is so often used of Jesus' compassion that one pastor preached a message, a sermon titled, The Spleen of Jesus. And one of his points was that followers need to have his spleen. That might be, okay, I like it actually. That'll preach. Listen, the healing ministry of Jesus was more than mere proof of his deity. It was also the pulse of God's heart. Of all the attributes, of all the attributes of God fleshed out in the life of the God-man, Jesus, not the least of them was compassion. I love the story of the leper who comes to Jesus in Mark 1. He comes kneeling. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. And Jesus looks at that leper and says he had pity. Same word. To yearn from the gut. He says, I will. And it says he reached out and he touched him. Now, the leper was used to people talking to him. But nobody touching him. But Jesus' eye gate led to his heart. Just like yours and mine needs to do. So, Early in my pastoral vis- uh, ministry, it was a Sunday night in the little church in the north. I was waxing eloquent on the love and compassion of Jesus. And something happened that has never happened before or since. While I'm preaching, there was a visiting woman just several feet from me. And in the middle of my message, she said, What do you know about hurting? You have no idea what I'm going through. Right in the middle of my message. And all I could think of was the manual that I was given in Bible college. No one is to interrupt you while you're preaching. (laughs) And, I mean, it literally stunned me. Because, in fact, I was stunned, and three things struck me immediately. The first. The first thing that struck me when she opened her mouth and said what she did was that she was desperate. I could see she was a very desperate woman. The second thing that struck me was that she was right. I was a young pastor, and I had very little experience in the area of hurting, but I was preaching on it. And the third thing that struck me was compassion. God himself gave me compassion for her. On the spot. 
I literally walked away from the pulpit and I walked up to her and I didn't touch her, but I got very close to her and I said, I know you're hurting. And I realize you're right. I have no idea what you're going through and I have not hurt that much in my life. I said, but God knows you're hurt. Jesus is compassionate and he will bear your burden. I didn't know what else to say to her. But I sensed in the moment, it's all I needed to say to her. Because God himself gave me that compassion, which I did not have up to that moment. Now, since then, I've had a few experiences. I could have said, oh, yeah? I'll tell you my story. How about instead, let's just have compassion for people. Henry Drummond said, Life is tough and men carry very heavy burdens. For Christ's sake, be compassionate. Be kind. And the the Puritan Thomas Watson said, We may force the Lord to punish us, but we will never have to force him to love us. That is his nature. And the compassion of Jesus emanates from his love. So since he is compassionate, we must be feel what's going on in people's lives. Look, feel. And then assess, assess. Jesus literally visualizes the situation, doesn't he? He sees the multitudes. He has compassion on them because they are harassed and they're helpless. They're like sheep. They have no shepherd. He visualizes the circumstances. And these words are expressive words in the original. The word harassed means to be exhausted. It means to be worn out. It means to be devastated. And the word helpless means to be utterly helpless. It means to be thrown down. But this is what I love. He's looking at these individuals. He's visualizing. He's assessing the situation. Oh, they're just, it's it's terrible. It looks terrible. And what does he say? Great opportunity in front of us. This is what I love about it. He doesn't just go, it looks terrible. How are we going to do this? No. Just the opposite. He visualizes it. They're harassed. They're helpless. They're shepherdless. And then what does he say? Look, there's a great harvest out there. Many of you have heard me say where there's a door, there's a demon. Where there's opportunity, there's opposition. But the opposite is here now. Where there's opposition, there's opportunity. And that's how Jesus sees it as he assesses the situation. Jesus never, he never allowed the overwhelming circumstances to overwhelm him. Instead, he took it, he took the opportunity to assess each situation. I'm not a big stat guy, you know that. I just don't, I'm just, they bore me to death. But the Pew Research Center says that the number of Christians around the world has nearly quadrupled in the last hundred years. Whoop, whoop. That's from 600 million, according to the Pew Research Center, in 1910 to over 2 billion of the 7 billion on the earth today claiming to be Christian. Now, of course, that includes Roman Catholics and mainline Protestants, so you go ahead and crunch the numbers. 
but the world's overall population has nearly quadrupled since 1910. Which means, as a result, we're losing ground, not gaining ground on this world. That's sort of stunning, isn't it? There has always been an abundant harvest, but there has also always been a small workforce to go after. At the rate of population growth in the world, the Christian and the soul winners to match, it's an overwhelming situation. In fact, it makes me wonder, when I read Revelation 14, I see God dispatching an angel in Revelation 14, 6, who goes around the whole world with the everlasting gospel. Have you ever read that? It's almost like God says, okay, well, they, they couldn't accomplish this whole thing. Send him out and let him preach it. Clean up the mess that we wouldn't complete. Get the job done. Instead, let's assess the situation and see it's deplorable, but before us is a great opportunity. And then pray. He says, pray. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly. I remember, again, when I was, I was a young pastor wannabe, I was at a workshop one day, and Charles Elber, the pastor of the, of the Ames Campus Baptist Church back in the 80s, he, I was sitting there. I'd only been a Christian a couple months. And he was walking around going, hey, real quick, write down on a piece of paper one of Jesus' prayer requests. Hey, real quick, write down on a piece of paper one of Jesus' prayer requests. And we're all going, Jesus' prayer request. We're, we're thinking of our own. And I just, my mind just wouldn't go here. But here it is. A prayer request from Jesus. Pray. And he didn't just... This isn't just the normal word for pray. It's the Greek word ekbalo. It means to throw out. Pray that God, that is the word send out. The word pray here means to pray, like pray earnestly. But notice he says that God would send out. That word means to thrust out, to throw out, to cast out laborers into his harvest. So, these guys had to be wondering at this point, you know, how's this going to happen? The word pray means to implore. I mean, in fact, you have an NASB, it says to, it says to beseech. The most underestimated elements or element of gospel outreach is prayer. No other prayer, no other prayer that you as a follower of Jesus will ever pray that will be answered more quickly from heaven than this one. You pray this and God will hear you. Because this is our call for the day. Win people to Jesus. And I got to tell you, when you pray and ask God for opportunities, they will come. I absolutely guarantee it. I absolutely guarantee it. And this is what Jesus told us to pray for. About seven years ago, it just absolutely overwhelmed us that we needed to pray. We were already reaching people. Souls were already being saved. But a small band of men started meeting together, fasting and praying. And when that happened, things literally exploded. Church plants started coming out of... uh, we got three of them now. Our church grew. 
And even this last Easter, as a result of a prayer week that led up to Easter, a small band of men said, we can't stop here. And of their own initiative, to this day, they meet every Friday morning and they pray. And from that, their wives started meeting together on Thursday mornings and they pray at five o'clock in the morning. Want to join them? Pray, beseech, beg the Lord of the harvest. Are you doing that in any way? And the last exhortation is go. You say, well, I don't see that here. We'll get to it. It says, pray that he will send them out. We already said that word means to thrust out, cast out, go. You say, well, where's the cliffhanger? Well, the disciples, it's like, who's going to do this? Who's going to be, who are we praying for anyway? They themselves hadn't even done it. There's a chapter break here, which helped my cliffhanger a little bit. It says in chapter 10, he called his 12 disciples. He gave them authority. And verse 5 says, he sent them out. They, as one writer put it, are the answer to their own prayers. Perhaps you will be too. Are you currently serving right now? Why not? What do you look at? And when you look, what do you see? Are you a surface looker? Or do you look more deeply into the lives of those you encounter? As a new Christian, again, another life-changing situation for me was when I was challenged to look at every individual as either heaven-bound or hell-bound. And that's, by the grace of God, that's what I do when I meet somebody. Whether I talk to them about Jesus or not, that's the first thing in my mind. Is this person saved and on their way to heaven or are they lost and on their way to hell? And it just sort of sets everything straight in my mind. It keeps me from lusting. It keeps me from coveting. It keeps me from getting so far off the beaten path that God isn't even in the picture. But you look deeper than what you're seeing with the physical eyes. So what do you see when you look at people? How do you feel? I'm serious about this. How do you feel about lost people? I know some of you have nothing but animosity toward them because you see them prospering, you see their politics, and you hate them for it. You're still looking very surfacy. God would have you look at them and feel for them because even the wealthy of this world will perish in the same hell as those who are perhaps not wealthy, or just derelicts of society? If all you have is animosity, if all you have is animus towards those who are lost, who do evil things, then you are a shallow person, spiritually speaking. God would have you have the spleen of Jesus and look beyond the surface and feel with that look. 
Have you ever taken the time to assess the task that's in front of us? We sing greater things have yet to come. Greater things have still be, to be done in this city. Really? Maybe. Maybe not. If we assess the situation and we see that we have a huge task but a small workforce, but you say, make me a part of that workforce, Lord, then we're talking. Now we're talking. And by the way, when's the last time you prayed for a, a God? Seriously, when is the last time you prayed personally that God would give to you a gospel opportunity? And then turn that prayer to pray for others that he would thrust, send out others into his harvest. And would you just, would you be willing to be an answer to your own prayer? Would you be willing to say, God, you're talking to me. I need to drop what I'm doing. And I need to go. I just read just the other day about a man that was an engineer making lots and lots and lots of money. But one message, one word from God, and he dropped everything and gave himself completely to the things of God. Just like some of you may need to do. What sacrifice? What kind of a sacrifice is it? We're talking about living for the one who died for us, right? Some of you have never accepted the one who died for you. You've never bowed your heart to him. You've never believed in his death and his resurrection for you personally. Some of you are just struggling with this whole business of what does it mean to have faith in him? It's very simple. You believe his word. You believe what it says in his word. That he was real. That he came to this world. That he lived a perfect life. That he died this sacrificial death for you. And you want him. You want your sins to be forgiven. If that be the case, then bow your heart to him and be saved.